All right, so we know we don't have air conditioning, so I don't know why the flies like it so much. But uh, we don't have air conditioning, so what we do have is popsicles. So well, put your hand up if you want a popsicle. They're coming. Now, when you get done, don't just be like the movie theater and shove that popsicle stick in the chair. Throw it away. We got garbage cans. This is our, our homemade. So you're going to pay attention right at the beginning of the message, and then you're going to sugar crash. I'm not going to hear anything else. Be okay. What's that? Yeah. I'm trying to get rid of the heat, both sides. All right, so uh, as I'm doing this, just to let you know, if you own a motorcycle and you like to go riding, we are doing a motorcycle ride at the end of this month. Uh, it'll be on a... On a Saturday, we're going to show up at 11, go grab something to eat. Just, it'll be a short one. So if you're like, I don't like riding long distances. Well, we'll ride a short distance, grab lunch, ride back. It'll be kind of fun. You can hang out with other people at Element. Usually we have two groups. We have the guys on the, on the sport bikes, and then we got the guys on the, on the like, Harleys and the you know, things. So it's like, I'm going to cruise, and I'm going to go. It's like the tortoise and the hare, but we both get the same place. It's okay. So um, just let the people at the Welcome Center know if you want more information. Uh, we can send you a PDF with all the stuff on it, uh, or we can just give the information. So uh, talk to them if you want to know about that. Uh, also, we know that there's a whole lot of fundraisers going on and stuff with kids going to camp. You've got to understand, we have, we have like, uh, I think, over five kids who are foster kids going this year. They don't have any money, and so we're trying to get these kids to be able to go to camp. And so they're doing all these fundraisers. Don't feel obligated. Okay, don't be like, man, I can't tell that kid no. They have a ticket in their hand. I feel so guilty with their, with their mopey eyes looking at me. <laughs> feel fine. You can say no. Don't feel obligated. But, you know, if, if, you're, if you're going to, you know, get your car washed at some point, you can get your car washed here. If you're, you know, going to go out for lunch, you know, on that Saturday or on that Sunday, just buy a tri-tip sandwich here. And just it all helps the kids. Also, um, if you're going to buy fireworks, uh, we don't have a fireworks booth, but I know First Christian does, and their booth all goes to help youth go to camp. It's out in front of uh, Toyota, so if you're going to buy fireworks, go there, help those kids out. See, it all just goes around, it all works. Woohoo! Everybody get your uh, popsicles? I went and saw a taping of the 70s show, they handed out popsicles. <gasps> They're th- tri-colored? <gasps> I did not know that! That's amazing! Okay, at the end, let me know if they taste the same all the way down or if it's like just, hey, but it's like one flavor. You know, it's like a snow cone. Does it? Sweet. Look how good we are to you. It's amazing. I want you to stay on there reading God's Word. Got to jump into this because I'm kind of long-winded today. Uh, Hey, don't laugh. That's Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. It says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Uh, Let's pray. Father, we ask that today we'd be those who understand the things that you mean for good and that all the stuff that we have gone through in our lives does not have to define us, but you and your grace and your son does. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so this is Genesis week 71. We've got two weeks left. Uh, and when we are done with this, we're going to hit our next series. It is called The Stupid Summer. And I have a promo for you right here. I didn't make it. Don't thank me. You think Mikey and Haley. Uh, they're going to do, uh, we're going to do two more of those as we go. It's some, tell you, getting some kids to talk on the mic, it's like, so tell me about Jesus. It's crazy. 
It's crazy. Uh, so uh, get it out now. That's all laughter you're getting this morning uh, right there. I, I promise you. Uh, if you are new since we started Genesis, today is going to be one of those things where we're going to chart the course that Genesis has set up. And I'm going to warn you up front, if you're one of those people who it's like, I never get enough theology. I never, you know, Aaron always talks and it's too easy to follow. I want to get lost. Today's the day. All right, we're just going to try and, and lose you a little bit in this. I'm going to be lots of information, so I need you to pay attention to it, and I'll try and wrap it up in the end enough to help you to understand what we're talking about because you are going to get some theology. The first thing you need to understand is everything is about Jesus and the glory of God. All throughout the book of Genesis, that's what it charts. That's what we ended with last week. The second thing you need to understand is that the Bible is not a whole lot of individual moral stories. I know week to week we're going through each little story of what's going on, but the Bible is essentially one story and it is what is wrong with the human race what god has done about it and how history will turn out in the end this is the idea behind genesis chapter 50 verse 20 as for you you meant evil against me but god meant it for good so in the beginning god creates all things good all things good that is the same word good both in those places Uh, creation was a gift to us our first parents adam and eve they sin and they fall that is mayhem it is a curse that gets placed upon us but in genesis 3 15 god promises that jesus is going to come and save us all what happens after this is adam and eve get placed outside of the garden and they have two sons cain and abel Uh, cain is jealous of abel's relationship with god and kills his brother because he thinks he's the highlander and there can be only one. Thank you. First service, nobody got it. Thank you. (laughs) Cain then runs out in the world and he says, I'm afraid people are going to kill me. If you read the text, you're probably like, well, who are those people? I only read about four people so far in the text. And later you read that that Cain lay with his wife. Well, where'd she come from? And that Cain built a city. Well, who's it populated by? Now, I do take the text historically and I believe it is accurate, but you have to understand the scriptures are incredibly selective. As an example, you go to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you get the four Gospels. Sometimes you can read events in different Gospels, and they're different. They don't contradict each other, but they're a little different. Like Mark and Luke. Mark is always very sparse. Luke has a lot of details. You go to the resurrection, and you have two angels at the tomb in the book of Luke. And Mark, he doesn't say there weren't. He just doesn't say there was. And, you know, and so you're like, well, what happens with that? And the answer is, it isn't important to Mark or Luke's point of what's going on. The writers in scriptures have a point they want to get across. And the text isn't there to get all of our curiosity stated, where the dinosaurs come from? Where did this happen? Where did the cavemen go? All, the, all those things. That's not what it's there for. See, the point is if something doesn't get explained, it's not important to what they're trying to get across. You know, what, what does God, the ultimate author, want to say through everything? That's the point. And, there, and there's tons of people with tons of speculation about you know, where they came from and what it was. But in the end, we don't know because it wasn't important. What the point is is what God is doing and what God continues to do. And so Timothy Keller says you are to learn three things from every single Genesis narrative. And this is, number one, how people were ruined. Secondly, the culture of death that results from that. And then third thing, the future city of grace. So you take Adam and Eve in the garden. The ruin comes in them wanting to make decisions for themselves, to put themselves in the place of God. And they tried to decide for themselves what was right and wrong, and it ruined them, which then led to death. They died. Death was an immediate result, and yet God comes and promises a savior. That is how people were ruined, the culture of death, and the future city of grace. He moved outside the garden. Cain kills his brother, and then God comes and gets a hold of Cain by seeking Cain out. In Genesis 4, 9, and 10, God says, where is your brother? And Cain gives a very harsh response to God. He says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Did you lose him? Was it my day to watch him? I don't know. You're God, not not me. 
And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now, you would think when God says your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, that God would then smite Cain and take his blood in recompense for that. But God doesn't. He's trying to get Cain to repentance. And this is what God does throughout the Genesis narrative. It is grace. We have ruined ourselves. We have brought death, and God continues to bring grace. We bring sin. God brings grace. Martin Luther gave a definition of sin as homo inse incurvatus, which means man curved in upon himself. This is the idea of pride, that sin is always focusing on ourselves. It is choosing us and ourselves above God and other people. It means sin is, yes, you do bad things. But secondly, sin also determines that even when we do good things, like maybe you're helping the poor, entering friendships, or studying the Bible, it's always about us. Sin determines how we relate relate to God and each other only so far as it makes our agenda go further. It's always about us. When things go my way and I'm happy, well, great. This is wonderful. But things become costly. People call me to do more than I want to. Well, you know what? I'm just out of it. This is why people say things like, oh, I'm leaving that church because I just wasn't being fed. You know, this is, I'm God, you serve me, give me everything I need, and if I'm not being fed enough, I need to go some other place where they are, where they will worship me and give me what I want. Rather than step in and say, hey, I want to serve, I want to help, I want to do this, I want to do that. It's, it's give me, give me, give me. It's, it's man curved in upon himself. This is why sin is insidious. See, repentance goes to the root of sin. It means when we get out of ourselves, we remove ourselves from the center, and we understand the grace and importance and the favor of God first and foremost. Meaning in our lives, there's really nothing more important than grace and repentance and understanding what that means. So in Genesis 4, what happens is Cain becomes sorrowful. It says, Cain said to the Lord, my punishment or my sin is greater than I can bear. See, he's sorrowful. He sees it. Oh, God, I'm so sorry, but it's all bent upon himself. It's more than I can bear. He doesn't say, look, God, what this costs you. He is obsessed with the cost to himself. Now, Timothy Keller writes this. He says, if repentance is at the bottom of the ruin of the human race, if repentance is so important that God was giving Cain every opportunity, and repentance is something so easy to miss and think you are doing it when you are not, then we should do everything to foster the skill of repentance in our lives. So when someone comes to us and they call us on some type of sin, hey, you did this or, or you did that, what's our natural response? How dare you do that? You're an idiot. Have I seen what you've done? How dare you call me on something? That is our first response. You know what our first response should be? It's to stop and think, is there some truth in this? Is that actually true? Am I really like that? And it may not be true. But our first response is to stop and think about that. Is that actually true? We should be very quick to see our sin. Uh, Number one, that is we see how we were ruined. Secondly, you see how this leads into what is called the culture of death. That sin ruins human society and culture. Now, today, we are still made in the image of God, and we know that because we continue to create. We reflect a God who is a creator God. In the garden, Adam and Eve, you know, God says, be fruitful, multiply, and that's what they start to do. He then has them work the garden in Genesis 2. Now, gardening is neither leaving the ground as it is or ruining it. Gardening is creatively rearranging the ground so it produces food and plants and all these things. It's for human life and flourishing and bringing glory to God. Some of you guys, you love to garden. You're like, sweet, right there. I'm bringing glory to God. Yes, you are. But this eventually becomes culture about how we work it and then how we honor God with it. You take the raw material of the world, you make it produced, serving people, human flourishing, glory to God, that becomes a culture. If you take the raw material of sound and colors and human experience, you will get the arts. If you take the raw material of the physical world and you work with it, you will get 
technology. If you take raw biological material, you will get medicine. It is for human flourishing and for the glory of God. Now, Cain and his descendants, they are living in the culture of death. They, are, they have ruined themselves, but they still produce. Genesis 4.20, they produce animal husbandry. 4.21, they produce music. 4.22, they produce technology with bronze and iron. They are producing a culture, but sociologically, it is a culture of death. Now, how do we know that? Because in the garden, God says to Adam and Eve, you're supposed to produce life. You, you make things that, that serve other people and bring glory to God. In Genesis 4, you see the culture of oppression and death and violence. Genesis 4.19, one of Cain's descendants. It says, Lamech took two wives. Now, what was the intent? Genesis 2.24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. See, certain things aren't just okay and, and equally valid in all places. One man, one woman, one flesh. Polygamy was not the design of marriage. And most throughout the Old Testament, you see lots and lots of polygamy. Robert Alter, who is a great Jewish historian, I think probably one of the greatest Jewish historians, says if you read the Genesis narrative closely, you will know one of the main subtexts he says is that polygamy is an absolute disaster. And these are the cultural forms that lead to oppression of women. Usually when polygamy takes place in a society, it's not like, you know, you know, like one woman and ten guys because there'd be ten holes in the ground with nine guys in them and one guy left standing because guys just don't go for that. Right? It is, it is one guy and a bunch of women. But what happened in that, it's not, oh, I need to be open-minded. Oh, I need to understand. You know what happens? Typically, it always leads to women being seen as property. It does not lead to respect and honor. And so Lemek starts to live this way. And then the next thing you see is Lemek goes to kill an adolescent boy for hurting him. He boasts he will never give up his anger. He is living a culture of death. In Lemek's life, it becomes your life to serve me. It is not my life to serve you. See, what you see about the city is that culture is starting to flow out of the city. The first time the word city is used is Genesis 4.17. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after his son, Enoch. Culture starts going out after the city comes together. The Bible never condemns cities. It never condemns art. It never condemns engineering. As a matter of fact, when God's people are in Babylonian exile, in uh, Jeremiah 29.7, God says, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find welfare. That is what it's supposed to be. If you, if you stick with the original idea of the garden, you would have more and more people in more and more gardens. They would come together. People would get together, and eventually you would have a city because pop, all these popular things come together, and they make a city. A city has law and specialization and economy, and culture flows from the city. It is density and diversity, and yet today, ours are all infected with sin. See, the density was supposed to be a good thing. People coming together, worshiping God, but density today has compounded sin. We're supposed to have diversity, all nations gathered together worshiping him, but today our diversity leads to conflict. And at the heart of a city is the battle for the culture. Will the culture lead to life? Or will the culture lead to death? Is it ruin or is it grace? Do we produce for the welfare of others or tear down others for our own welfare? Do we work for God's glory or for our own? Do we make a difference? Because you really almost need to be in cities today to make a difference. Today, over 50% of the world's population, first time ever, a couple years ago, just happened. More people are in cities than in rural areas. And so people are in the cities. But in the cities, it takes tremendous power not to be drawn into the poison of sin. This is huge for our day today. The questions of ruin and death and grace. And so how do you navigate? What does it look like? 
1, Genesis 4, Cain makes a city. He doesn't name it after God. He names it after his son. He makes a name for himself. And you see how this spirals down. And at the end of Genesis 4, it takes a whole different turn, goes back to Adam line, Adam's line where God has shown grace, where God has called them. And what you see in Genesis 4, 25 and 26, they start a new line. And it says, at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. That points to the future city of grace. They started to live for God's name and not their own. They, eventually you'll see that these people intermingled together and you have cities within cities and what does that look like? Jesus says in Matthew five fourteen to 16, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on its stand. And it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven that's what the city the culture inside the city is supposed to look like the believers in god who eventually become the believers in christ are a city within the city you as element are a little city a little community within the larger city our doors are always meant to be open so everybody can always come in we are not clickish we all we don't push everybody else away we are a city within a city bringing some type of culture and we should be a culture who calls on the name of the lord and makes a name for him and not ourselves and that will transform everything because the third thing again you have to understand is the future city of grace it actually starts now it starts now and I got a long time winding through this, but let me just kind of show you some stuff from the rest of the book of Genesis. Genesis 5 and 6. What happens is you have 1,656 years of depravity, except for one guy, Enoch, in there. You know, he sings the theme song of the Jeffersons and he moves on up. That's, that's Enoch. Then you get the guy named Noah. You know, and then God comes and God takes care of all the sin. Uh, he starts with Noah and his family. After Noah gets off the ark, what does Noah do? He plants a vineyard and gets drunk. Then he passes out naked in his tent. His son comes in and mocks him, so Noah curses his son. That, what that happens, you see ruin and death. It is how people were ruined, the culture of death. But in Noah's narrative in Genesis 9, you see the future city of grace because God comes and restores covenant and relationship again. You get to Genesis 11, verse 4. They start building the Tower of Babel. They are making a name for themselves, not a name for God. How they are ruining themselves. They are working for themselves and not for Jesus. They are working for themselves and not serving other people. It creates a culture of death. The city produces a culture of death. But you go to Genesis 12. What happens? God shows up again. He calls a guy named Abraham out of Babylon. Abraham doubts God. He stumbles around like a hypocrite, loses sight of God's promises. But eventually he comes to the place where he trusts God so strongly that he's willing to give up his son to God. And the place he's willing to give up his son is where the temple would eventually be built in the city of Jerusalem, which points to the ultimate future city of grace. And there's lots of things in the text to bring this together. But open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 50. And this is what happens with Abraham's descendants. Throughout the course of the rest of Genesis, Abraham's descendants, who Genesis focuses on, goes through place to place to place. They're very nomadic. They become cities within cities every place that they go. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob is a guy, once again, somebody else who gets involved in polygamy. Uh, he is a bad dad. Yet Jacob has sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel, one of which, which is Joseph, who's like the best guy in the entire Old Testament. Joseph is a teenage kid with a bunch of issues. He has this dream. His brothers are going to bow down to him. They don't like that, so they sell him into slavery. That is how they were ruined. The father showed favoritism. And what did it do to the boys? The boys brought about a culture of death. They told their dad, Joseph is dead. They figured Joseph was dead when they sold him into slavery. You know, how's that punk kid going to survive anywhere? Ha, ha, ha. We'll just sell him off. 
Joseph gets sold to a guy named Potiphar, whose wife thinks Joseph is hot. He will not sleep with her, gets a false rape charge placed against him, and Joseph spends his 20s in jail. Eventually, Pharaoh has a dream that no one can interpret except for Joseph. And Joseph then says, this is what you do. You're going to have a big famine. This is how you protect everybody in your country. Pharaoh says, great, you do it. I'll take the credit. I'll be in the parades. You do all the work. And so Joseph becomes the second most powerful man in that country at that time. And he makes a plan that saves millions of people, which points to the future city of grace because Joseph was a blessing where he was. Eventually, Joseph reconciles to his brothers and his dad. He brings his whole family down to Egypt because of the famine, and they again become a city within a city. Now, last week, their dad finally died. Now that dad is dead, the question becomes, will Joseph now create a culture of death? His brothers have ruined a lot of stuff. Will he live in the culture of death that their ruin has created, or will he continue to live as the city of grace? Does he seek revenge for all the years that were lost? Genesis 50, starting at verse 17, which is where we left off last week, says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. Joseph's been nice so far, but, you know, dad's dead. They're questioning Joseph's love for them. And so what they're trying to do now is get a scheme to cover their butt. Rather than praying and rather than seeking out God, they try and cover themselves. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command when he died. Here's what daddy said on his deathbed. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And then the brothers say, and now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph, dad said you're supposed to love us and take care of us. We all vote. We all agree, yes, that's what you're supposed to do. So how about you do that? Now, this is really interesting in this because they actually refer to the God of your father. Now, they know that they gave up the right uh, for brotherhood in this. And so when they sold them into slavery. And this is actually an instance where they point, the brothers point to God as the reason that should unite them. They do it out of manipulation and fear, but it makes it no less true. Worship of God brings stronger ties than kinship. And that is what flows out of the city of grace. How does Joseph respond to the manipulation? It says, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Now, we know Joseph is a crier. Like, every, oh, I'm going to cry about all this stuff. He's a crier. But here he cries because he knows what his dad said on his deathbed because he was there. He lost all those years with his dad. When his dad was ready to die, he was not going to leave his dad alone on his deathbed. He was there the entire time. They say to Joseph, we don't trust you. We don't think you're compassionate. We don't think you're honorable. And Joseph has got to be thinking, me? You ruined my life. You took 22 years away from my father. Joseph has housed and cared for them and took care of them now for 40 plus years. His brothers thought Joseph was just like them, but he was not. And one of the biggest problems we have with forgiving and loving those around us is we think they're just like us. We think everybody's got to be just like we are. How we don't trust people? Well, ah, yeah, I don't trust you because I don't trust people. And all over and over, we, we do this all the time. Other people are not like you. Some of them are, but other people aren't. His brother is standing against Joseph in a lie. So what does Joseph do? Will he respond in kindness like the God he serves? You know, will Joseph continue to bring this culture of grace? Verse 18, his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? They fall at his feet. The same thing he told them the dream was going to do in the first place, they hear do it again. Throughout them coming back together, the brothers keep doing this over and over and over. And Joseph could seek vengeance. He could be arrogant. Yes, bow down to me. How do you like my feet? Do they smell good? Yeah, you stay down there. I mean, how would you treat your enemies? I know you have people that irritate the snot out of you, that have hurt you, but has any of them sold you into slavery? 
Has anything put you in a place where you got thrown into jail, wrongly accused for 13, 14 plus years? Anybody done that to you? See, th- this is the whole idea. If, if your enemy came to you, or you were supposed to go seek out your enemy, would you create more of a culture of death, or would you live in the city of grace that God calls you to live within? This is why Joseph says, am I in the place of God? He said, I know I have sinned. And God has forgiven me, and I'm going to forgive you. And Joseph tells him, number one, that he is not fit for worship. He says, don't fall at my feet. Many of us today, we want to be worshipped. It's what we're all about. That's why we watch all the people on TV. I want to be just like them. I want to be worshipped. I want to be a rock star. I want to be a sports star. We talk like them. We act like them. We dress like them. It's idolatry. We're trying to be something that other people will worship rather than being the people God calls us to be. It is a culture of death. Your only life ambition should be to make God happy, to bring him glory, because when that happens, good things happen throughout the rest of your life. The second thing he says is he is not in the place to judge them. He's not in the place to judge them. Now, don't get me wrong. If if you're a parent, you have the right to judge the conduct of your kids. Please do, more so than you have, okay? Judge the conduct of your kids. Churches should oversee the conduct of its members. Courts judge the conduct of its citizens. But only God has judgment over people's hearts because, number one, only God knows everything. God doesn't rush off to judgment. A couple weeks ago, someone was mad at me for something that I didn't do. But someone just said, I think Aaron did this. And, it's like, and they're all mad at me. And when they got all the information, like, oh, yeah, I, I'm sorry. I don't think they even said I'm sorry. You know, they're just like, ah, you know. And, and God never does that. God never goes off half-cocked because God knows everything. And the secondly thing is that only God is just. Only God is just. I mean, we have these things like, oh, non-believers get punished for their deeds and believers get rewarded for their good deeds. In the New Testament, we're told all of our deeds are filthy rags. Everything comes down to the grace and the goodness of God. We are a people who rush to judgment too often. Someone cuts you off in a car, what's your first response? It's your death sound. Oh, right? It's like, if it could only just fry your car, it'd be so much better. You cut me off, boom, death ray. That's what we want. Joseph tries to put away what ruined them. He tries to put away their death and show them how to live in grace. He says, you worship God because he is the one that will judge. Joseph understands their sin is between them and God. He says, don't repent to me, repent to God. Don't make me happy, you make God happy. He also knows that if they were closer, none of this probably would have actually happened. Because when people hurt you and treat you poorly, it's because they're probably not walking with Christ. When you respond poorly, it's probably because you're not walking with Christ. Because if you both are, eventually, and it may take some time, but eventually things work out. Because it is his city of grace that we are working towards. We should always be growing towards it. When we get ourselves out of the center, and we get him in the center where he needs to be, And that takes you to the most important verse, I think, in the entire book of Genesis regards to evil and pain and hardship and suffering. Genesis takes everyone's sin, just lays it out there for us all to see. It shows people's pain. It shows why there is suffering and pain. You know, sometimes for you, maybe you don't know where to go or what to do with some of the stuff that has happened to you. Joseph, he's a slave. He is ridiculed. What does he say? Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me. As Christians, if you're a believer, you know people are evil. How do we know that? Because we are evil. Yeah, because they're evil. No, because we are. And we know we're all evil. You don't explain actions away like, oh, they're just a good person. They did a bad thing. Joseph lays it out there. You meant evil. 
Sometimes you've got to look at somebody when they do something stupid and just and not be like, oh, I know you're a good person, but that time you ripped me off and slept with my mom and you know, shot my dog, it, that just wasn't good. No, you just throw it out there and say, you're evil, and just let it sit. Right? You're like, oh, I like doing that. You too. You too. I really want to tell people they're evil. <laughs> yes, we do. But it's us too. You know, sometimes you sit out there and, and you, just, you just let it sit. Sometimes when I, when I counsel people in my office, they keep talking about themselves about all these things. And I'm like, you know what? You just need to start in the place that you understand you have ruined your life. You have created a culture of death around you. You're evil. You just have to realize that. Because when you understand that, you are horrified with your sin, but you have hope. Because God comes in and redeems it. That is the city of grace. That's supposed to be the great gift of Christianity to the world. That your hope is not in people. If it is, you will need meds and therapy your entire life. You'll be on Dr. Phil and Jerry Springer and wishing Oprah would come up with a brand new book to fix you. But she can't. Because she's evil. Joseph says, you meant evil against me, but God. He takes the conversation where it's supposed to be, points to God, because the real problem with his brothers is that they don't understand or trust God. He knows if his brothers are to change, if anybody in this world is supposed to change, it's not going to be because of his lecture. It's not going to be because of me up here preaching at you. It's going to be you coming to a better understanding of Jesus Christ. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God used your evil for good. It doesn't mean God is evil. It means that God is good. Joseph said, God had me in Potiphar's house to learn about business. God had me in prison so I can interpret Pharaoh's dream. God used a famine to save so many people so they could hear about him. And God used your sin to make us a blessing so we're a city in this city. And now people want to hear about God. We are to bring about the city of grace. Now, if you and I were to look at our lives in hindsight, like Joseph, you would see that God has done great things. If you look past the pain and see what God has actually done. And God does this, usually one, through our pain, how we were ruined, how we then led to the culture of death and lived lives that didn't glorify and honor him, but also the restoration and the redemption that God brings, the city of grace. Because only when we understand that can we then help others. Whether it's drinking or sexuality or pornography or people hurting you or you feeling rejected or you're rejecting others. I mean, sometimes people say to me, why doesn't God just take away the struggle? And I really think that ministry and grace, it comes out of pain. It comes out of pain. And the struggle that God leaves in us forces us to need other people. It forces us to begin to live as the church with each other. See, Joseph steps back and says, you meant evil, but God. But God meant good. God doesn't bring evil, but God will bring redemption every single time. And Joseph wouldn't have wished for what happened to him, but I think at this point, he wouldn't change it for anything in the world because what God has done is beautiful and it is good. When God heals us of our brokenness, we become stronger. I know a lady who was raped. It's a terrible evil. This is how we were ruined. She then starts about thinking about, I'm going to get an, get an abortion, the culture of death. But in the end, she decides to keep the child, and that child now helps women who decide not to abort their babies, the city of grace. God turns rape into ministry. That's what God does. What was meant for evil, God took and used for good in the saving of many lives. I know a young guy whose dad beat him severely. This is how he was ruined. He lives in a home that's just a hell. This is the culture of death. And yet this guy now has a ministry to abuse kids. That is the city of grace, the saving of many lives. See, the areas of pain and loss and hurt that we go through in our lives, God can and will and does use to help heal other people. 
you know, oh, I was raped, I was abandoned, I, I was abused, I you know, was neglected as a kid. Jesus comes in and he redeems and moves all of those things to the place where we can live and become the city of grace. We need a bigger perspective of how Jesus and God rules, how he intends for his people to interact with the world around us. Joseph sees that, he understands that, he lives that. That life is not all about pain, that it is about redemption. Romans 8.28, Paul says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. There might have been days when Joseph looked in the mirror, if he had one in jail, probably didn't have one, you know, and just think, you know, what am I still doing following Jesus? Everywhere, everyone tries to ruin this guy. He's thrown into jail. They're ruining him. He's, he's in a city that is full of a culture of death, worshiping false gods. But he keeps knowing God was good. He becomes a blessing, not just to his city, but eventually to his entire nation. And he tells his brothers, so they will know and love and trust this great and big and glorious God. In verse 21, he says, so do not fear. He says, God is good to me. I'm going to be good to you. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. There's a lot of information in there. But I hope you see the difference of what our culture and its ruining of people and the death that it brings, but the ultimate city of grace that God intends for his people to live and be in the midst of it. Our city does not need more idolatry. It does not need more religion. It needs people who will cast aside their pride and simply live the life Jesus calls us to and to love him. I'll tell you, even in churches, religious people will ruin a church if they stay in it and never change. Jesus comes, he gives humble, happy confidence. It is happy because he loves me in spite of me. It is confidence because it is a gift and I can never make him stop loving me. So we should never stop loving the city around us while we become the city of grace. It is present and it is future. It goes on for eternity. We were ruined. We were caught up in the culture of death but have been given redemption to live in the city of grace. We must understand that we are more evil than we ever feared, but we are also more loved than we ever dreamed so that we can be a people who live the city of grace. Our first reaction should not be to be start pointing at all these people. We start here, and then this changes. And then we live that in our homes, in our lives, in our workplaces, and that changes. And then those people live that in places. Then our, ci- our city changes, and our state changes, and our nation changes, and hopefully one day the entire world changes. Because what God does with every single person, and it doesn't stop with just you, It moves out beyond you. This is why God calls us to be a community of people as a city in a city, living together on a mission for his name, discipled, being discipling other people around us. It's one of the reasons I bring you guys to communion every single week because communion is a place of humbleness. We recognize that, you know, we had ruined ourselves. We had brought a culture of death, and Jesus came and died and rose from the dead to give us life, to extend to us that we can live in his city of grace. That's why you take that cracker like his body was broken for us, and so you break it. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice, which just simply represents his blood that was shed for you and I. So we can become these people who live in the city of grace. The communion doesn't do it for you. It's remembrance of what God has already done for you, to make us into this people. The band's going to come up. As they do, they're going to do a couple songs. And as they do these songs, we invite you to take communion. There'll be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you need prayer for any of this, maybe you are living a life where you're just a culture of ruin and death, and you are you know, doing everything you can to destroy things around you, and you're just angry and just want to tear people down, and you just can't stand them around you. Well, you know what? You need to learn how to live in the city of grace. And they would love to pray for you about that. 
have these offering boxes on the side wall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us, so giving is simply part of our worship. And there's food and stuff in the back. And again, we put food and stuff in the back so you guys can actually get to know each other and not just like, yay, food, and then you're gone. It is about coming together, learning how to be the city in a city, a, a group of people worshiping Jesus together. You go outside these walls. It's not like, oh, this is my church. You know, you're jacked up. Stay out of it. It is doors always open. Everybody's always invited in. You know, Jesus' circle is never closed. It's open. He loves people, and he intends for his people to live in a way that he is honored. And so ours is the image of him and other people. And so we live in a way that we don't shirk back from the truth or what the truth is, but we live lives that honor his name. We stop living in the ruin as ruined as we stop living the culture of death. We start living the city of grace, what he calls us all to. Why don't you guys pray with me? Father, this morning I ask that we as a people would understand what it means to live in grace, that we would honor you and that we would trust you. Because God, far too often it is so much easier to live a culture of death, especially when we understand that, yes, you know, we've ruined ourselves, other people have ruined us. You know, we have done things, things have been done to us. And we just want to stay in that culture of death that destroys those around us, that lets other people know our pain. But you are a God who moves us forward to the city of grace, a people living for your name, breeding a a Jesus-honoring culture in all that we do and all that we say, how we interact with each other and how we interact with people who are still ruining themselves and others, people who are still living a culture of death. God, you place us as a city within a city, as a people in the midst of a people. And so often people have the first reaction that, yeah, well, I just want to make a bomb shelter and hide. Now that I know Jesus, I'm just going to hide it all. And you never allow us to do that. You place us in the midst of our city, in the midst of our culture, so we can't run and hide. And that we can make a difference by lifting you up and honoring who you are in us and in those around us. Teach us today to begin to live the city of grace. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.